Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Most listeners to this show have heard of Elizabeth Keckley, Mary Lincoln's dressmaker and confidant. Few, however, may be aware that in 1935, a journalist with an axe to grind published a story that gained national attention claiming Mrs. Keckley never existed and her famous memoir of a life from slavery to the White House was written by someone else. Even fewer are aware, perhaps, that this outrageous piece of fake news inspired John E. Washington to interview as many survivors of wartime Washington's African-American community as he could find, and then to write a now almost forgotten book, They Knew Lincoln. Professor Kate Major knows all this, having produced a new edition of Washington's classic piece of Lincolniana. We'll talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the Brewster Building tonight, where summer construction is underway. There are workers pounding jackhammers and running cables through the old building trying to get things ready for the next academic year, so it's not a safe place to be at this point. But although I am still talking about East Carolina University, I'm not speaking on behalf of the university or for anyone else, and I know my guest likewise will speak only for herself tonight, as we always do, on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, first message must go out, as always, to the show's number one fan, my mother back in Michigan, who is... Uh, currently recuperating and uh, uh, in a rehabilitation facility for, I hope, the very short future. Uh, I don't think mom is able to listen tonight because I don't think there's a computer in the room that she's staying in, but uh, I plan to be up there and visit soon, and then we can listen to this together, and you can tell me how I'm doing, as always. Hope you are feeling better tonight. Well, I am feeling good tonight, Uh, still buzzing from last week's very successful trip, this hallowed ground put together by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. I had the good fortune of being able to lead such a tour uh, for the fifth or sixth year in a row. We went through battlefields from Manassas to Appomattox and the Eastern Theater, saw all kinds of things and uh, from Sunday to the following Sunday, eight-day tour with a wonderful group of travelers gathered from all around the United States and from uh, England, from Northern Ireland. We had visitors from, uh, from many places, many different states. It was really uh, a wonderful trip. The people are what make it great every year, and this was no exception. It was the largest tour I had traveled with in some time. We had a full bus uh, 34 travelers, and so many interesting perspectives that people shared on the war, so many knowledgeable people, so many people without didn't bring a lot of background knowledge, but a lot of interest and, and gained uh, knowledge and interest, hopefully, as they went. Uh, lots of great conversations and, and great sights. If you are thinking of traveling this summer to Civil War, related areas, it's a great time to be doing it. We saw, uh, we had wonderful weather, which helped, uh, but at, at Gettysburg, we can see the effects of the National Park Service building, uh, or not building, but taking out uh, underbrush, so you can now see clearly from Little Round Top to Devil's Den and beyond, that was once heavily wooded, now you can see much more clearly what the view was like in 1863 and understand how things unfolded in that part of the field. Of course, uh, since last year, the modern motel on the site of the Lee headquarters building is now gone. You can see that area. There's the relatively new museum in the on Seminary Ridge uh, available. So many great things there. And I had a particular uh, delightful moment visiting the Shriver House Museum, which I highly recommend to anyone visiting Gettysburg, uh, for learning about the experience of the civilians who were there during the battle. And when our bus pulled up, uh, Nancy Goodmastad, who runs the museum and was a guest on this show last September, uh, 
gave me a big hug and said how nice it was that uh, she'd gotten a number of visitors to the museum who heard about it through Civil War Talk Radio. So I was glad to hear that, and even more glad to hear that she will be speaking at this year's Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Peter Carmichael puts together a wonderful program every year. And I discovered that uh, there was a sort of town-gown separation between what uh, Professor Carmichael was doing at the museum and what Nancy was doing at her, or what he was doing at the college and what she was doing at the museum, and that they had never connected. She hadn't spoken at the institute. He hadn't visited the museum. So uh, I told both of them they should they should each work with the other. And uh, Nancy was delighted to say she will be speaking this year at the Civil War Institute, which I will be attending also and uh, hopefully rounding up more guests for the show, always looking for new perspectives on the Civil War. Uh, and we've got some in the, the days ahead. Uh, next week, and, and this is this is fresh news, not yet even appearing on impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War website, because just got some of these buttoned down uh, in the last few days. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about a book that has not even come out yet, and I've, I've just got the galleys in electronic form. It's called The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, and it will look at the possibility, apparently the very real possibility, of a treason trial for Lee in the immediate aftermath of the war. We'll find out together how how realistic this was when we talk with the author next week. On June 13th, the week after that, it's uh, The Lost Light, different loss. This is uh, subtitled Civil War Mystery, and I'll leave it at that. This book was recommended to me by one of the travelers uh, on the tour this past week. Uh, She had read it and... I'd had a copy sitting on my shelf for a while, thinking that might be a good show someday. And, and when I heard how good it was, I called the author, so we're setting that up. And our last show of the 2017-18 season will be June 20th. The book is The Iron Way, Railroads, the Civil War, and the Making of Modern America by William Thomas. Promises to be very interesting. One of my graduate students recently read it and thought it was just outstanding and I appreciate recommendations from many sources, including you. If you have read something interesting or want to hear about something, uh, send me an email. Let me know. Go to the www.impedimentsofwar.org page to see if they've already been on. And if not, let me know. You can also, while you're there, donate to Civil War Talk Radio. It's purely a gift of love on your part. Uh, No tax deduction, no legal benefit, no obligation on my part to do anything responsible with the money. I can funnel it into any kind of laundered account I wish. Theoretically, though, I will buy books for the show. Well, enough chit-chat. Let's talk. Wait, one more thing. ECU, East Carolina University, is hosting a regional mini-tournament in the NCAA baseball tournament. Given the state of ECU's basketball and football the last few years, we take our pleasures where we can, and the baseball team is looking good, one of the top 16 in the country, so they're hosting. Uh, I might go see one of those tournament games, and I'll let you know next week how it came out. Well, tonight we are not talking baseball. We are talking about a book that disappeared from public consciousness for uh, more than half a century, but has now been revived by our guest. Uh, she is Professor Kate Major. Uh, Professor Major, are you there? Hello. Hi. 
Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. First, let me guarantee that I'm saying your last name correctly. Uh, how do you pronounce it? Well, my family pronounces it Maser, um, but I am not picky about it because everybody has a different pronunciation, and it's kind of an Americanization anyway. So, as you might recognize. It, uh, indeed. With, I, it, it's happened to me before, once or twice. Yeah, I've never, <laughs> I've never gotten over it. Um, Maser, I will, I will get it right then. Um, there's another historian with the same last name, but the two of you are not related. Is that correct? That is correct. You're not the first person to inquire about that, but we, uh, we actually had a funny email exchange one time. Uh, he wrote me to ask me if I would write something for a journal he was editing, and he said, by the way, are we related? <laughs> not that I know of. Um, and so we figure, you know, maybe once upon a time back in the old, old, old country. Exactly. Well, the the book you have uncovered here, uh, They Knew Lincoln by John E. Washington, uh, you, you've written a, a, a new and very comprehensive introduction for it. Uh, Oxford University Press has, has released it. This is um, – it, it, people are always saying, you know, what's new uh, in the Lincoln world? Has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? <laughs> and here, here's a book that uh, – that is relatively unknown today, yet uh, yet ought not to be. Let me ask, start by asking you, how did you first come across it? Um, I first came across this book when I was a graduate student. I went to University of Michigan, and I was working on a dissertation, probably just starting it, on Washington, D.C. during the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I was just, um, I don't know what exactly I was doing, perusing the library shelves, trying to, following up on other people's footnotes or what, whatever you do. Um, and that's how in the Michigan Library I had this book, and I checked it out, and I thought it was really kind of a curious book. Um, it was really unusual. It was uh, this book written, published in 1942, um, that is a combination of um, reminiscences and oral histories and stories about African Americans who knew Lincoln, and it just really piqued my curiosity uh, about who was the author, uh, what can we know about the conditions under which it was written, um, so I never really, uh, I, although I continued on with my dissertation, I really uh, kind of kept that book in the back of my mind and wondered uh, what its story was. Um, could I ask, who was your advisor at Michigan? <laughs> Um, I had two advisors, Terry McDonald, who um, was there for quite a long time and was the dean for a while. Now he's head of the Bentley Library, and Elsa Barkley-Brown, who is now at University of Maryland. Okay, I, I uh, say go blue. I, I got my undergrad and <laughs> law degrees there, many happy hours in the Hatcher Library uh, studying, but, but I, I think I probably predate you by, by a good amount uh, and, and didn't, didn't know any of those professors. Um, okay. So, uh, but, well, imagine but, but, they knew Lincoln was on the shelves even then. I, I, I would guess it would have been. Uh, mm -hmm. But yes, the Bentley Library and, and the the Grad, uh, many many fond memories of those places. Um, well, you, you, as you just said, uh, this piqued your curiosity about who was uh, John E. Washington and what prompted him to to write such a book, and those are the questions that I want to start with, but we're going to take a short break first, uh, let the station take care of its uh, business, and come right back and talk some more about the book They Knew Lincoln by John E. Washington, uh, a new edition by Oxford University Press with a new introduction by our guest tonight, Kate Mazur, 
I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kate Maser, author of, or editor, I should say, of They Knew Lincoln by John E. Washington, a lost classic of Lincoln history from the 1940s, uh, so the the question that that intrigued you, um, Kate, can, can I use first name? I know we haven't of met course. officially. Sure. Um, uh, thank you, uh, and call me Jerry. We'll save lots of time. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the the question that comes up is who is this John Washington, and what what prompted him to to write this book? Right. Well, I um, it was when I first found the book and, and from the, at the university library and looked into it a little, and I think this was actually even in the early days of the World Wide Web, it was almost impossible to find out anything about him. I mean, you could find out 
things here and there, but it turns out, um, and I, I just got, the more research I did on him, the more interested I got in him. Um, he was an African-American man who was born in um, actually Annapolis, Maryland in 1880. Uh, so basically, you know, 15 years after the ratification of the 13th Amendment, if you want to sort of put some, or the end of the Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. In 1880, he was orphaned as a child. Both his parents passed away. His parents had been slaves, and so had his grandparents. Um, And he moved to Washington, D.C. as a child and was raised mainly by his grandmother. Uh, And he went on, he was educated both in uh, Catholic school as a young child and then in the Washington, D.C. segregated public school system. He was able to go to um, the M Street High School, which was the preparatory high school for African-American teenagers. So basically the most elite, best option for education for a high schooler, if you're African-American at that time. And then to Howard University, where he got three different degrees. Um, And he became a high school teacher, and he taught at Cardozo High School, which was the kind of considered the second best high school um, in the city for African Americans. It was a business-oriented high school, um, second to M Street, which became Dunbar High. And he taught mechanical arts, or commercial art, actually it was called. Okay, so that so that's what he did. That was his his money-making job, his stable job for a lot of his adult life was teaching at Cardozo. One of his degrees, however, from Howard was in dentistry, and so he also, on the side, practiced dentistry and also was a Lincoln buff and a kind of collector of Lincolniana and materials related to African-American history in the Civil War period and after. Um, he owned a house on Florida Avenue where he lived with his wife of many years for a long time. Her name was Virginia Washington, um, and so he was... He was a really, really interesting figure. He's not, at that time in Washington, D.C., uh, was a kind of hub of the African-American elite of, in the nation, and both the cultural elite and the intellectual elite and around Howard University. But we kind of have heard of a lot of those people. Um, many of them are, you know, really well-known in their own right. And he wasn't among that group of elite or well-known black intellectuals. And yet he had this very interesting, very um, kind of diverse career. And one of the things that was very important to him was finding out more and publishing on the history of Lincoln and African-Americans. So since he was born in 1880, this all precedes his lifetime. But he grew up knowing a lot of people who, as the book says, uh, who remembered Lincoln. Uh, Exactly. I mean, so he was, um, he describes himself as having been very attentive to the stories that older people told when he was a boy. So you sort of imagine this boy is being raised by his grandmother. Now, she ran a boarding house near Ford's Theater in Washington. She didn't own the boarding house, but she was kind of the manager of it. And in the basement of the boarding house, there was like a kitchen area where she was able to have friends over. If you picture a situation where a lot of African-Americans at that time would have worked in domestic work in white people's homes and probably lived 
in those homes. So for his grandmother to have her own space where she could have friends over and gatherings um, was unusual. And, and, and because if you lived with your employer, you might not have that kind of ability to have people over. So he remembered growing up, his grandmother would have friends over. Many of them were um, people who had lived through the Civil War, had escaped from slavery during the war, had stories to tell about slavery, about the war, about uh, one of the friends told a story of um, Benjamin Butler's occupation of Fortress Monroe in Northern Virginia, um, and they made their way. They had made their way to Washington, and some of them had encountered the Lincolns in one way or another. Um, and so Washington was really fascinated by these stories. And one of his purposes later in life was to kind of make sure that that generation's stories and memories of that really pivotal period didn't get lost or forgotten. Now, you mentioned the the grandmother's boarding house was near Ford's Theater, and uh, for for the, the boy Washington, the, the child Washington, that was a scary place. Right. So um, among the many stories that people told were stories about, or sort of, yeah, stories about the idea that Ford's Theater was haunted. And some this of his is... grandmother's friends just generally believed in ghosts. So they would tell ghost stories um, about, you know, a location being haunted or, or certain kinds of superstitions. But one of them was the idea that um, the ghost of John Wilkes Booth still kind of haunted Ford's Theater. Um, they reported that they would hear clanking of chains or like hear the ghost of Booth getting on a horse and riding away quickly, strange lights flashing or screams uh, going on. And it's interesting because um, some of his grandmother's friends told these ghost stories. His grandmother told him, don't believe any of that. That's a bunch of, you know, superstition. And we're modern people who don't believe in ghosts. But as a kid, he was really kind of freaked out by those stories. And the the violence of the Lincoln assassination, again, even though it happened 15 years before he was born, but people who had lived through that were telling stories about it, that violence and I think the trauma of living through that, if you were um, kind of close to it or really cared about it, had made a really big impression on Washington. Um, so he was always also interested in art and painting um, and things like that. And he describes in his book that at one point he was so preoccupied with Booth that he painted a picture of John Wilkes Booth and then like tore it up and poked holes in it in a kind of hope of exercising the ghost of Booth. Um, and later, you know, when he's writing the book, he looks back and says that was kind of silly, but he was really kind of terrified of Booth as a kid. Which, which is understandable. The uh, uh, Years ago, I worked at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, in our assassination exhibit, we had a print of uh, Satan tempting Booth to mm. the murder of Lincoln. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the famous print, and it's it's a really scary uh, devil figure uh, talking to the also frightening Booth. Yeah. I, I mentioned the, the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, because I see a number of the images that, you, that are reproduced in the book and a number of the footnotes reference the the influence of, of Lewis Warren, who founded mm -hmm. uh, what, what used to be the Lincoln Museum and unfortunately no longer uh, extant as a museum, but its collection lives on. Uh, so how did Washington get involved with, with uh, the Lincoln 
historical community. Uh, um, it would be so. Uh, you mentioned in the kind of opening of the show that mm-hmm. uh, there was this controversy in 1935 about Elizabeth Keckley and whether she wrote behind the scenes um, right. her this book that came out in in, 19, in 1868. And we can go back to that, you know, if you want. But so. When Washington, based on that controversy in 1935, Washington decided to write a, he got him, he embarked on this project that began about, to be about Keckley, but broadened out into a project about African Americans and Lincoln. And so one of the things that he needed to do was reach out to this world of Lincoln collectors um, and Lincoln kind of scholars, but also amateur collectors, Lincoln fans, Lincoln buffs, um, and inquire, you know, what do you know about these stories? Um, Because we have to sort of put ourselves back in a very different time. Um, Now, to some extent, although it's not not totally true, but to some extent, the idea that you would write the history of African-Americans in general or um, the relationship of a famous figure like Thomas Jefferson or James Madison to African-Americans he knew is a much more familiar concept to us now. But Mm -hmm. at that time, Washington was embarking on something that was completely unprecedented. So one of the challenges that he faced was, how do I even do this research, right? Like, if nobody's written about this before, I don't really know where to go to find information about these questions. So he began to reach out to people in this world of Lincoln collectors um, who might know something about leads to follow or might have little scraps of information about a person um, that had know- who had known Lincoln who he wasn't aware of. One of the people that he reached out to was Lewis Warren, who was based in Fort Wayne, Indiana, as he said, was um, in charge of this Lincoln uh, National Life Insurance collecting a kind of organization that was had a Lincoln library and also published Lincoln lore, which was a newsletter about Lincoln related stuff. Um, And so Lewis Warren and the Lincoln National Life Association or foundation in Fort Wayne was one organization like that. Another was the Abraham Lincoln Association based in Springfield, Illinois. Um, And one of the things that I think is interesting, and I'm a native Midwesterner uh, myself is that these organizations were in the Midwest. Um, so here's Washington, John E. Washington, who's from originally Maryland, but really D.C. And he, the, the people he needs to reach out to to pursue this research um, are in the Midwest, you know, not in the intellectual hubs of places like Boston or the East Coast, but he has to go inland um, to, fi- to find out, to find uh, more about, um, about Lincoln and uh, and so, actually, um, many of those people, including Lewis Warren, uh, were very receptive to his inquiries and were interested in his project and interested in trying to help him um, uncover stories that didn't hadn't been told or hadn't been fully told yet. I think there's an interesting intersection here between uh, professional historians and uh, the the whole Lincoln project, as I think Keith Erickson describes it. Uh, that Lincoln attracts lots of amateurs, lots of enthusiasts, uh, as does the Civil War generally. And a lot of people write books who are not academically trained. They often sell better, in fact, than than uh, professional historians. And certainly in the Lincoln world, Washington is in that intersection. He has academic training, but not as a historian, 
Lewis Warren is another in, in the same position. Uh, Carl Sandburg is somebody he talks to. Then you've also got James Randall, the academic historian who, who works, uh, who assists Washington. But it's it's a curious world, this blend of, of uh, public history, academic history, and sort of uh, popular history. Uh, where does Washington come out in, in that mix? Yeah, I mean, I found this whole thing really interesting. And um, although I had read some of James Randall's works of history before, I didn't really mm-hmm. know James Randall's kind of story um, until I started looking into this whole thing. So Randall, James Randall, uh, was a professor at the University of Illinois and had written a book on constitutional problems in the Lincoln administration. Um, but but in addition to whatever he published about Lincoln, Randall had this very um, kind of serious and dogmatic approach, which was professional historians need to write the history of Lincoln and kind of responding to all the amateur interest and collectors and Lincoln buffs and whatever. And he was, and people were saying, has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? And Randall's answer to that was no, because now professional historians, meaning people with PhDs, people in universities need to take this up and really, um, you know, do it from the angle of whatever somebody with a PhD would do. Um, and that has to do with, you know, it has to do with the particular world of Lincoln studies, and it also has to do with 20th century academia and kind of the professionalization of history writing in general. Um, but so Randall uh, was somebody else that Washington ended up reaching out to, and Randall supported to some extent, but not to an overwhelming extent, supported um, the project. But Washington, so Washington fits into this story in a really interesting and and kind of weird way, which is, number one, Washington didn't have a PhD in history and was kind of more like a Lincoln collector, Lincoln buff than like an academic studying Lincoln. But also Washington was African-American and there weren't many black people, if any, who were undertaking this kind of study. And there weren't very many African-Americans, if any, in the world of Lincoln collecting and Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Ophelia or whatever of the mid 20th century. And so whenever Washington reached out to these people, he was, uh, again, not just an amateur, but he was like, um, an African-American person, the descendant of slaves, a person with, yes, he had college degrees, but they were from a black university um, and so I think a lot about what it must have felt like to be in his shoes and feel like you were reaching into this extremely white world um, and having to kind of show your seriousness and having and he really needed those white kind of Lincoln collectors and, and so forth, like Lewis Warren and James Randall to put their stamps of approval on his project that became really important for him getting a book contract and actually getting the book out. So he, he kind of fits in as a, as an amateur historian, but he's quite different because of his background and because of being um, African-American. You mentioned in the book, he, when the book is published, he gets uh, Carl Sandburg to write a a forward for it. And, you compare that to uh, Frederick Douglass and other African-American writers in the 19th century having to get uh, or, or wanting to get well-known white abolitionists to 
write forwards for their book to to give it credibility to establish these people are really who they say they are and uh, that tradition sort of carries on with with uh, Washington and Sandberg yeah I mean I maybe a little bit less to establish credibility but to establish marketability in a way ah, like important. to establish yes. that this is a book you would want to buy even you know Carl Sandberg thinks this is a book worth buying right and so you're putting um, the stamp of approval I mean, or it, and also, I mean, Randall wrote an endorsement that Washington then put in his preface, and mm-hmm. Randall's endorsement said, you know, this is a really important book, although Randall's view on it was <laughs> it wasn't history, it was folklore. Um, so Randall was really invested in this distinction between real history, which is what people with PhDs do, and uh, folkloric studies and quaint you know, antiquarian studies. So Randall says, this is a really good book in a folkloric kind of way, in a very like, quote unquote, Negro way. He compares it to a spiritual, but he did say positive things about it. Um, And so I think those things, um, it's clear from the correspondence that I read that Dutton, E.P. Dutton, which was the publisher, wanted a big name to do the uh, forward, and that was Sandberg. And so they said, okay, let's get, you know, Sandberg, the beloved Lincoln biographer, to do the forward. So they were establishing that this you want and to that, buy that this would, book. Exactly. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'd say that, that will get you the market you need. Um, yeah. We need to get our market here on the show by oh, running sorry. another break, so I'm going to jump in. But we're going to talk more about uh, John E. Washington as historian and the book he wrote, They Knew Lincoln, with its editor uh, and new producer, Kate Maser. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Kate Maser, who has 
introduced and edited a new edition of John E. Washington's lost classic book, They Knew Lincoln. It's a unique uh, combination of historical research, personal reminiscence, uh, oral history, discussing people in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere around the country who knew Abraham Lincoln, who remembered him, who told stories to Washington about him uh, from the viewpoint of the African-American community. We've been talking about how Washington came to write this book. Uh, Kate, one of the things that struck me about this is that for all the professional historian Randall uh, claiming that this isn't really strictly professional history, in some ways, Washington uh, leaps a generation or two ahead in his use of sources that would not become common until later in the 20th century, like uh, oral history, uh, the, the producing the documents themselves in facsimile form that he uses in the, the book to, to show where he's getting the use of pension records of uh, other government documents. All these are, are common today, but uh, in, in some ways Washington pioneered this kind of writing. That's right. I mean, and and this is something that I've, my appreciation for it has really deepened over time just because of thinking about the the monumental nature of the research task that he had to confront. Um, One of the things that I realized after a while working on this book is that William Herndon, who was Lincoln's law partner in Springfield, Illinois, and as Lincoln you know, buffs and Lincoln scholars know, William Herndon compiled all of these interviews with people who had known Lincoln right after the assassination. Um, And it appears to me, and I I checked this out with a couple of other people, at least as far as, you know, anyone can tell, Herndon did not interview any African-American people um, for, so Herndon wanted to interview, you know, the person at the the county, you know, at the at the crossroads store who encountered Lincoln in one transaction. I mean, he really wanted to interview supposedly everyone who Lincoln had encountered, and yet, for whatever reason, because of his own blinders or whatever, he did not. No, no records survive of him having ever consulted with African American people about Lincoln, even though black people worked in the Lincoln White House. There was Elizabeth Keckley, a very high-profile person, and most of all. Um, the barber, uh, William de Florville from Springfield, who was a very prominent member of the Springfield community, um, who, um, most likely knew Herndon. Um, Florville ran a barbershop. He uh, was a musician. He was a philanthropist. He published little articles and poetry in the local newspaper. Um, and and he was around. He survived uh, until, I believe, 1868, and, and yet Herndon didn't interview him either. And so what John Washington was facing was, how do I uh, find out about people for whom it seems as if almost all records are lost? Um, and he just was incredibly eclectic and um, persistent in his research. And as you said, I mean, he drew on oral histories. He drew on government records, employment records with the Treasury Department, because some of the people, uh, African-Americans who had worked in the Lincoln White House, had later worked in the Treasury Department. So their personnel files were on file with uh, either the Treasury Department or now the National Archives. Um, he did oral histories also of the children of people who had passed away um, to talk to ask them what their parents had told them, um, and then he you know researched more conventional sources like you know documents, letters, and things like that. And so um, 
when historians now write social history or try to kind of tell the stories of people who didn't leave behind very many records, they also resort to similar strategies of trying to piece things together from a lot of different kinds of sources. Um, and I really came to see him as being a, a pioneer in that kind of research. Although I will also say that in some of that patchwork nature of his research and in publishing the primary sources um, as part of the book, he also, it's a little bit backward looking to practices of 19th century African-American historians like George Washington Williams and how they wrote their histories. So there's a, it's a really interesting book in that sense because it's both looking backwards, but also kind of looking ahead to social history practices of the, you know, of the more modern period. You point out that Herndon did not consult black sources, but obviously Lincoln knew African-Americans, as anyone in Springfield would have, uh, and certainly anyone in Washington, D.C. would have. Uh, and really, that seems to me the the, the central point, perhaps, of, of both writing the book and, and republishing the book today, is to, to ask the question um, – and I'll quote it from the book, how had African-Americans themselves shaped Lincoln's views on emancipation and racial equality? Uh, it, not a unique question, but but one that, uh, th- that the best way to answer might be to, to look at the actual interactions. And I know other historians have done this since, but uh, who were some of the significant black figures that who interacted with uh, Lincoln out of the the, the almost invisible uh, environment of, of servants uh, that, that every white middle-class family might have had in the 19th century, of, of cooks washing uh, people, laundry, laundry people, carriage drivers, uh, barbers, and so on. They're everywhere, yet they're invisible to today. Did any, who, who did Washington find who, act, who we have a record of? Well, one of the, um, I can talk a little bit more about William de Florville, but I want to mention first um, Mm -hmm. a woman named Mary Dines. Mary Dines was one of Washington's grandmother's friends. So she was somebody who Washington had known when he was a child. She was of this older generation, had been born in slavery in Maryland. She uh, had actually come to Washington, D.C. She had escaped from slavery and come to Washington just before the Civil War. And she had actually learned some literacy skills while enslaved. And so she got a job at what's called a contraband camp, a camp for, you know, fleeing slaves in the city that the U.S. government set up. And she um, had taught uh, English. She had taught literacy and ran the choir at this contraband camp in Washington, D.C. And she told a story that Washington heard as a child of Lincoln visiting that camp on his way to or from the, um, probably to or from the soldier's home where we know Lincoln spent some time um, in the summers uh, to get away from the heat and the kind of chaos of downtown Washington, D.C. And that contraband camp was was on the route that he would have taken from the White House to the soldier's home. And she described that President Lincoln had stopped at the camp, that they had been told ahead of time that he was coming. People gathered together their best clothes, which at that point were, you know, some scrappy combination of U.S. soldier uniforms, Confederate uniforms, you know, whatever they had to put on, um, and a uh, 
kind of lay or a, a, sla- a formerly a former slave preacher, but of like the folk preacher variety, um, mm-hmm. preached a sermon and then the choir sang and they sang a combination of patriotic American songs like My Country, Tis of Thee and Spirituals. And they were very nervous. She described how it was like this very big deal, and they were very nervous. Um, but Lincoln was moved by what he saw and um, joined in the singing um, and came back a second time and asked for another sermon and more songs. And so that's a very evocative story um, about, you know, the Lincoln's relationship to the situation that was going on in Washington, D.C. at the time, right? And, the, and his interactions with people who were escaping from slavery. I mean, there was a debate during the Civil War, as you and your listeners probably know, like especially at the beginning of the Civil War, you know, what are the, what are the slaves going to do if this war breaks out? Are they going to, you know, the Confederates like to say, oh, they're just, they're loyal to us. They're just going to stay and keep doing what we want. Although probably they secretly knew that that was highly unlikely. Um, and the Northerners were we're not sure what the kind of outcome was going to be. And it, so as, these, as, as time passed and the war continued and it became clear that one of the things that slaves wanted most was freedom, that they would be willing to escape, that they would be willing to take up arms against their former owners, um, that really changed how a lot of white northerners saw the war. And you see that sort of in microcosm in that vignette about Lincoln going to the camp and sort of seeing, look, you know, here are people who are who have desires, who have um, goals, who have a culture, um, and 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 so that that story, although it, it doesn't draw those direct conclusions, we can't know exactly what Lincoln thought when he was there. But the story mm-hmm. from the perspective of Mary Dines is very very compelling. Um, there are, so that's one of the stories in the book. Mm-hmm. I say there are a lot of uh, very interesting characters you mentioned briefly: William de Florville, Billy the Barber. Uh, uh, listeners may know by name at least of people like uh, William Slade uh, who worked in the Lincoln White House or or the valet William Johnson Uh, we're almost at the end of our time so I want to come full circle back to Elizabeth Keckley Uh, Washington started the book started the the research project to to refute the idea that Keckley either hadn't existed or hadn't written the book herself he certainly definitively shows, of course, she was a real person. Uh, did she, in fact, write the book entirely by herself? Was that Washington's conclusion? So um, that is an interesting question. So, so Washington, so to back up for a second, um, sure. a, a, a reporter named Bess Furman wrote a story for the AP in which she had interviewed um, uh a, a, a person who had said, oh, Elizabeth Keckley never wrote this book, and moreover, she never right. existed. Um, so, so Washington was one of many black uh, Washingtonians who said, wait a second, you know, we knew Elizabeth Keckley. She died in 1908. Washington had not personally known her. Um, mm-hmm. And his first... His, his, the most important thing to him was proving that she had existed, that she had had a special relationship with uh, Mary Lincoln, that she had been a, this extremely dignified, highly respectable, very talented African-American woman, you know, refuting the idea that, uh, which 
David Rankin Barbie, the guy who was saying this, had said, no, you know, Mary Lincoln would never have confided in some black woman, you know, no white Southern woman of her breeding would ever have done such a thing. And Washington wanted to prove that that wasn't true, but he was always open to the idea that somebody else might have helped Elizabeth Keckley write the book. And, you know, it makes sense to think that uh, if you're Elizabeth Keckley in 1868 or 1867, um, you're a, a formerly enslaved woman, uh, you have some literacy skills, but you certainly don't have connections in the New York publishing world, um, to a greater or lesser extent, you're going to need help, you know, either writing the book or getting mm-hmm. a publisher or some combination of those things. Um, so Washington was open to that idea and was actually curious about who might have been the person who helped because he certainly didn't was skeptical about the claim that this other white woman named uh, Jane Swisshelm had been the actual author of the book and the entire thing was sort of made up. Um, mm-hmm. So he ends up doing research, but the pivotal interview that he has is with um, an elderly woman named Hannah Brooks who was actually a survivor of that generation, she remembered as a girl being at her, I want to say, grandmother or aunt's boarding house in New York City when Elizabeth Keckley was staying there and writing the book. And Hannah Brooks said that everyone knew that it was James Redpath who was helping Keckley write the book. James Redpath was a... uh, I believe Scottish born radical abolitionist kind of rabble rouser journalist with a lot of connections who could well have been a person who uh, came to the boarding house each day and kind of either took down her words or helped her write the book, helped her get a contract. So John Washington's book put forward the theory that it was Red Path who helped Keckley get her book into print. I sort of, you know, I tried to get as deeply into this as I could And I looked at what literary scholars who have looked at Keckley's book and its publishing history have said. And uh, the reality is, you know, we'll never know for certain how much help she got and also who was the who was the person or people who helped shepherd that book through publication. But a lot of uh, literary scholars agree that the theory that it was Redpath is as good a theory as any. Um, Hmm. And the other thing I should add in terms of the book um, behind the scenes by Elizabeth Keckley, um, is that one of the charges that um, David Rankin Barbie made was that it was all made up and that it was a fiction and the entire story of this woman named Elizabeth Keckley was not true. But we know that actually most of it was true. And really scrupulous research has been done, particularly by um, Jennifer Fleischner, showing right. that a lot, you know, as far as we can tell using other sources to, to double check and cross-reference, a lot of what Elizabeth Keckley wrote about really did happen. Um, and, you know, you can see that by cross-checking sources. So, um, so, the, so the, the questions of to what extent she was the sole author and things like that are, are ultimately, you know, or to what extent was, did she get help are, are not ultimately answerable. But, but we do know that the book is as kind of truthful and based on things that actually happened as mm-hmm. just about any book that would be a memoir or told from somebody's memory of things that had happened could, could be. Well, it, it, the, this book, they knew Lincoln is unique in Lincolniana. It, it's a fascinating book. I, I found myself, uh, I kept being drawn into the family. Uh, James Randall was my advisor's advisor. Lewis Warren was my predecessor's predecessor's predecessor as the editor of Lincoln Lore, which I did for a few years at the Lincoln Museum. Uh, so I kept seeing these names of people who 
I felt intellectually related to. Uh, but the book stands on its own. Uh, listeners, you will be fascinated, I think, as I was, to know the story of They Knew Lincoln, both the, the wonderful introduction uh, that you wrote, Kate, and also the, the book itself. Uh, so definitely a recommended book if you're looking for some new angle on Lincoln uh, this summer. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Kate, so much, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, and thanks for uh, reading the book and being interested in it. <laughs> and listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.